but this map really sets into perspective just how unseasonal what we saw was. That's part of a report from the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, and you'll find a link for that story in the show notes. And I'm Robert McLean, your host of Climate Conversations. Welcome. It's so great to have you on board. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And wow, I'm sounding a bit croaky today, and that's my 76-year-old voice. An adjunct associate professor at the University of Technology in Sydney, Robin Smith has written on the conversation, and the headline for his story is, Too Big, Too Heavy and Too Slow to Change. Road transport is way off track for net zero. Robin's story begins. The need to cut carbon emissions driving climate change is urgent, but it's proving hard to decarbonise road transport in Australia. Its share of the nation's total greenhouse gas emissions doubled from 8% in 1990 to 16% in 2020. New vehicles sold in Australia have barely improved average emissions performance for the last decade or so. The federal government publishes emissions forecast for 2035. That's 15 years short of 2050, the net zero target date. A newly published study forecasts road transport emissions through to 2050. The estimated reduction by 2050, 35-45% of pre-COVID levels in 2019, falls well short of what's needed. Our findings highlight three obstacles to achieving net zero. These are... Australia's delay in switching to electric vehicles, growing sales of large heavy vehicles such as SUVs and utes, and uncertainties about hydrogen as a fuel, especially for freight transport. These findings point to policy actions that could get road transport much closer to net zero. More than 70% of Australians are concerned about the climate crisis, but of that number, few, including myself, know really what to do about it, what, how we should respond and what we should be doing. Because we're embedded, all of us, deeply and inextricably in a capitalist, market-driven profit system that prevails in, well, pretty much right around the world. I think I'm doing people something of an injustice because I suspect many people know exactly what to do, but it's almost impossible. How do you stop, how do you step outside an economic system that supports you in every possible way. And how do you do something different? It's a hard, hard question. And without bold and far-reaching decisions being made by our leadership, we are sort of locked into where we are. And that's not good. And so in taking note of the last story, which it was explained that trucks and other heavy vehicles contribute something like 16% to Australia's carbon dioxide emissions, we need courageous and bold decisions to implement a process throughout Australia where heavy trucks and those big vehicles can be replaced by rail. That's courageous and bold stuff. And beyond that, that last mile, that is where goods arrive at a station in a particular urban area and are taken to their final destination by a small electric vehicle covering that so-called last mile. But such a wonderful and efficient service depends upon vision. But it's terribly unlikely to happen because we need people with vision, people who can see beyond the bottom line, people who can see that the bottom line would actually be better if it includes people's well-being, health and their thriving would actually be better if we're able to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions and we can do that. 
by removing heavy trucks and heavy vehicles from the roads. A friend frequently says that everything is connected to everything. And so in listening to a webinar put on by SHAPE, that's the acronym for Saving Humanity and Planet Earth, that was entitled An Asia-Pacific NATO, Fanning the Flames of War. Among the guest speakers was the Director for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, Professor Jeffrey Sachs. And his presentation has nothing to do, in fact, with climate crisis, but in fact, it's all about the climate crisis. He was talking about the possibility of nuclear war among the major nations of the world. But anyway, I'll let you make up your own mind. You can have a listen to this. Remember, as you listen, that everything is connected to everything. And the driving forces behind what he talks about are the same driving forces that are behind the climate crisis. Professor Sachs was speaking from a cafeteria at 6 o'clock in the morning, and so he apologised for the background noise. I want to thank you for inviting me and thank SHAPE for its leadership. And I just had the privilege to listen to uh, uh, Alison Brynowski and, uh, and uh, uh, Chung In Moon. And these are brilliant statements uh, that we've all been uh, uh, treated with. Uh, absolutely insightful. I uh, absolutely uh, agree with all that has been said. The world has gone mad, uh, but especially the Anglo-Saxon world, I'm afraid. I, I don't know whether there is any sense at all in our little English-speaking corner of the world. Uh, I'm, of course, speaking of the United States, UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Uh, there's something profoundly disheartening uh, about uh, the politics of uh, our countries right now. The deep madness, I'm afraid, is uh, British imperial thinking uh, taken over by the United States. My country, uh, the US, is, is unrecognizable now uh, compared even to 20 or 30 years ago. I'm not sure, to tell you the truth, who runs the country. I do not believe uh, it is the president of the United States right now. Uh, we are run by generals, by our security establishment. Uh, the public is privy to nothing. The lies that are told about foreign policy are daily and pervasive by a mainstream media that I can barely listen to or read anymore. The New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, and the main uh, television outlets uh, are 100% repeating government propaganda by the day. Uh, and it's almost impossible to break through. What is this about? Uh, well, it, as you've heard, uh, it's about a madness of the United States to keep uh, US hegemony uh, militarized, uh, dominated by the thinking of uh, generals who are mediocre intellects, personally greedy, and without any sense because they're only modus operandi is to make war. And then cheerled by Britain, which is 
unfortunately in my adult life, increasingly pathetic in being a cheerleader for the United States for this hegemony and for war. Whatever the US says, Britain will say it 10 times more enthusiastically. And uh, it could not love more the war in Ukraine, which is the, the great second Crimean war for the British media and for the British political leadership. Now, how Australia and New Zealand fall for this idiocy is really a, a deep question for you because people should know better, but I'm afraid that it is the five eyes and the security establishment that tell the politicians to the extent that the politicians are involved in this, uh, well, this is how we have to do it. Uh, this is uh, our security state. And I don't think our politicians necessarily have much role in this. Uh, by the way, the public has no role at all in US foreign policy at all. We have no debate, no discussion, no deliberation, uh, no debates over voting the uh, 100, now 113 billion, but in fact, much more money spent on the Ukraine war so far. There's not been an hour of organized debate, even in the Congress on this, much less in the public. But my guess is that your security establishment uh, is uh, really the driver of this. And then they explain to the prime minister and to the others, uh, you know, this is this is the utmost national security. Uh, and this is what uh, America has uh, told us. And let me explain what we're seeing. And of course, uh, you cannot uh, divulge this uh, to the broader public. Uh, but this is at the, the essence of uh, the struggle for survival in the world. Everything I see myself, I'm 43 years in, the, in this activity as, a, as a, an economic advisor all over the world, is nonsense. And one thing that would be interesting for people to look at to understand these developments is a very telling article by a former colleague of mine at Harvard, Robert Blackwell, uh, and uh, Ashley Tellis, written for the Council on Foreign Relations uh, about uh, eight years ago now. I just want to read a couple uh, excerpts from it because it laid out the whole plan of what's happening right now pretty uh, directly, which is how things work in the US, which is the through the uh, establishment media, uh, you're basically told in not uh, necessarily completely explicit terms what's going to happen, because what is unfolding right now is really part of a, a longer term planned agenda. It's not ad hoc. So here's what uh, Blackwell uh, and uh, Tellus wrote in 2015, first, quote, since its founding, the United States has consistently pursued a grand strategy focused on acquiring and maintaining preeminent power over various rivals, first on the North American continent, then in the Western hemisphere, and finally globally. Uh, and then uh, argues that this goal of primacy ought to remain the central objective of US grand strategy in the 21st century. So what's the goal? The goal is very straightforward. It is primacy of the United States globally. Then Blackwell and Tellus lay out 
the game plan for China. So they tell us what to do. Here's the list. It's, I'm only uh, excerpting, quote, create new preferential trading arrangements among U.S. friends and allies to increase their mutual gains through instruments that consciously exclude China. Okay, this is the game that already uh, uh, Obama started uh, with TPP. He couldn't get it through, but I'll go on and then I'll comment. Second, create a technology control regime to block China's strategic capabilities to build up, quote, power political capacities of U.S. friends and allies on China's periphery and strengthen U.S. military forces along the Asian rimlands, despite any Chinese opposition. What I, <laughs> what I find uh, remarkable about this is this was a list made in 2015. It's exactly <laughs> the step-by-step -step plan of action. This is repeated uh, in recent history in, in 1997's Big Brzezinski in an article on foreign affairs laid out exactly the timeline for NATO enlargement and the intention to include Ukraine in NATO enlargement because this was already the security establishment plan. Of course, it's led us directly to the Ukraine war. Uh, which is a war over NATO enlargement. Now the friends that have and the geniuses that have brought the world, the Ukraine war, want to bring the war to your neighborhood uh, with the, the as uh, Professor Moon said, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization starting to open its offices in Asia, which is not exactly the North Atlantic. So this is where we are. It's it's not absolutely simple to see through for one main reason, at least in the US, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but I expect that it's the same. We have no honesty or discussion at all about this. The policies are owned entirely by the security establishment, the military industrial complex, the network of quote, think tanks, which are non-think tanks in Washington, every one of which is funded by the military industrial complex. They've taken over the East Coast universities entirely where I teach. I taught 20 years at Harvard. I teach at Columbia University. This is our milieu right now. And the, the silent coup happened in, in essence. Uh, no debate, no public politics. No honesty, no documents revealed, everything secret, everything confidential, and mysterious moves. And since I happen to be an economist that uh, engages with uh, heads of state around the world, I hear a lot of things. And so I've seen and heard a lot of things directly, which uh, help me to understand the lies every day. But you will not find any of this in our public discourse. Just a word about the Ukraine war, completely predictable and part of a plan of action that goes back to the early 1990s to essentially 
bring Ukraine into the U.S. military orbit. And Brzezinski, again in 1997 in the Global Chessboard, his geopolitical book, uh, laid it out completely. Russia without Ukraine is nothing. Uh, Ukraine is the geographical pivot for Eurasia and basically go get it. Uh, interestingly, Brzezinski said in 1997 uh, in the book, but the one thing absolutely American policymakers need to ensure is that they don't push Russia and China into an alliance together. But then he says, that's pretty much unthinkable. You know, don't worry about that, but that would be the craziest thing in the world. And it, it's exactly what these crazy people have done. I happen to have been an advisor to Gorbachev, to Yeltsin, and to Kuchma in the early days of uh, the, both the late days of perestroika and the early days uh, after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, I watched very closely uh, what was happening. I saw that the United States was absolutely uninterested in any way in uh, helping to Russia, helping Russia to stabilize. The idea from the start was unipolarity, keep Russia down and take steps already uh, decided in 1992, basically, in direct contradiction to what had been told to Gorbachev and Yeltsin to start expanding NATO. So this is a game plan with a long horizon. When it comes to China, my, and by the way, uh, the, the U.S. was deeply implicated in the overthrow of uh, Ukraine's president in 2014. It was a coup. Uh, it was to an important extent a regime change operation of the United States, not entirely, but to a very significant extent. I happen to see part of it uh, in a very weird way uh, up close. And I know how U.S. money poured into supporting the Maidan. And it was incredibly disgusting and very unnerving. And Putin noticed that the U.S. contributed to the overthrow uh, of a friendly uh, government next door with in the context of the explicit intention to push NATO, by the way, not only to uh, Ukraine, but also to Georgia. And when one looks at the map, it's Brzezinski's idea, surround Russia in the Black Sea region, Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Georgia would all be members of NATO. That would be the end of Russian power uh, projection in the Eastern Mediterranean and the Middle East. So go these geniuses. And uh, Putin gave many opportunities for negotiation out of this. The Minsk agreements endorsed by the UN Security Council in 2021, December 17, he put on the table a perfectly reasonable document for negotiation, the draft US-Russia security arrangements, which called for an end to NATO expansion. The US blew it off. I called the White House after that was put on the table, spoke to one of our top uh, security officials. Uh, and uh, said, negotiate, stop the NATO enlargement. You have a chance to avoid war. 
the United States formal response to Putin was NATO is non-negotiable. Uh, this is uh, something only between the U.S. and Ukraine and Russia has no say in NATO enlargement to Ukraine. It's a mind boggling way to pursue foreign affairs because it is a direct road to war. As you know, I, I hope everybody understands this war in Ukraine was close to ending in March 2022 with the negotiated agreement a month after Russia invaded on February 24th with an agreement between Ukraine and Russia that the United States stopped because the U.S. said, fight on, fight on, uh, don't negotiate, don't accept neutrality. And so here we are in a war that continues to escalate towards possible nuclear war, which is what would happen if Russia were to suffer deep defeats on the battlefield. It's not doing that right now. It's not experiencing that. But if it did, it just escalates to nuclear war. Russia is not going to be defeated, uh, pushed out of Crimea and go home meekly and saying, uh, we're sorry we did that. It's going to escalate if it needs to escalate. So <laughs> we are right now in a spiral that is extremely dangerous. Japan plays utterly into this. And Australia, it's so sad uh, to, to watch Australia in, in a uh, uh, accepting to be used in this reckless way to pay a fortune to be used in this reckless and provocative way. And US actions by and large till now with very few exceptions, US actions are putting us on a path to war with China in the same way that US actions did in Ukraine. Only this war, well, either war could end everything. Uh, but the whole idea of the US and its allies fighting China is mind boggling in its implications, in its stupidity, uh, in its uh, profound dangers, and in its utter uh, divorce from real security interests and from reality because China is not a threat to Australia. It is not a threat to the world. And last time I looked, correct me because there's some experts in the room, uh, many uh, more than I, but I don't know of a single overseas uh, Chinese uh, invasion in its history, by the way, uh, other than on the borders. I don't know in its whole history, except when the Mongols briefly ruled China and tried to invade Japan, other than the Mongol invasion, defeated by a typhoon. Other than that, I don't know of another single case in 2,200 years of Chinese statecraft. So this is not exactly at the top of my worry list. Uh, this is uh, what worries me about the world is a deeply neurotic United States that aims to be number one, that can't be number one in the way that it self believes to be number one, 
that has a pathetic, and I'm sorry to use the term, but it is pathetic cheerleader in London every day saying how wonderful it is. Empire is great. You should go try it. We love it. Jeffrey, and to, I mean, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to stop here. Uh, sorry to go on and on. But let me just, if I could, one minute to say what should be done. The war in Ukraine could end the day after Biden steps up and says NATO will not enlarge to Ukraine. Believe it. The basis for negotiation has been there for 20 years and rejected by the U.S. Second, the idea of opening NATO offices in Asia is mind boggling in its risk and its stupidity. And please tell the Japanese, stop this. It's reckless. Third, the U.S. approach to Taiwan, except in a glimmer of reality of Blinken last month, is profoundly dangerous, provocative, and uh, deliberately so. Fourth, uh, what is needed is regional dialogue in Asia, in Asia, among Asians and among the Asia Pacific. And fifth, use RCEP, because RCEP is actually the correct concept for the region uh, to bring together China, Korea, Japan, ASEAN, Australia, and New Zealand in a coherent framework, especially around the climate challenge, energy policy, trade policy, investment policy would do a world of good, not only for the 15 in the Asia Pacific, but for the entire world. Sorry to have run on so long and, and to ramble, but it's so important what SHAPE is doing. You're completely on the right track and all best wishes uh, to your efforts. The military industrial complex mentioned by Professor Sachs is precisely, with some minor exceptions, the same group that is driving the climate crisis. I was fascinated by his comment that the world has gone mad. Well, with regard to climate crisis, he's exactly right because we are driving at increasing speed with our eyes shut towards the abyss, the climate abyss, and we don't seem to care. Yes, Professor Sachs, the world has gone mad. Let's just have one more story, and it's from the Journal of Climate Change and Health, and the headline for the article is, Building Resilience to the Mental Health Impacts of Climate Change in Rural Australia. The article is written by several people, and the background for this is, Climate Anxiety and the Mental Health and Wellbeing Impacts of Extreme Weather-Related Events are of growing concern globally. In Australia, where the current authors are based, rural communities in particular are dealing with unprecedented drought, fires and floods every few weeks. The mental health and well-being impacts of such climate change-induced events are numerous and varied and operate within complex systems. However, little is known about what promotes the resilience of rural communities to these impacts. Yes, farewell. We're at the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you on board. Now, I'm keen to know what you think about this podcast, so you can contact me at number 7 at icloud.com. And that, of course, is via email. And please don't forget to follow this podcast, because if you do that, you'll be automatically notified every time I publish a new episode. And don't forget to check out the show notes, as you'll find links to the stories I've mentioned in there, plus 
several others. So please check out the show notes. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle.